Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. And our guest this evening is Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Tonight we'll be getting to know the senator and where she can, stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions. And then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Elizabeth Warren was born in Oklahoma City in 1949 and graduated from the University of Houston. After getting her bachelor's degree, Warren started teaching children with special needs at a public elementary school. When her daughter turned two, Warren enrolled in law school and graduated with a degree from Rutgers University. She practiced law out of her living room, but then became a professor, teaching at Rutgers, the universities of Houston, Texas, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, and finally Harvard. From 2008 to 2010, during the Great Recession, Warren chaired the Congressional Oversight Panel for the Troubled Asset Relief Program, before acting as the Special Assistant to President Obama for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. She was elected as a Democrat to the U.S. Senate for Massachusetts in 2012 and re-elected in 2018. She lives with her husband in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and has three grandchildren. Senator Warren, thank you for joining us on Conversation thank with you. the Candidates. It's good to be here. We appreciate your time. Thank you. So you've risen in this race on the strength of your ideas. Elizabeth Warren has a plan for that, has become part of the lexicon of the 2020 race, which must thrill you. And perhaps this entire race will play out on the merits and on the ideas. I sure hope so. But how will voters know when, that you're ready for when the race does become a fight for who wins? So, you know, I've been around this block before. Um, and that's back in the 2012 race in Massachusetts. Um, I had done the Congressional Oversight Panel. Uh, President Obama had asked me to set up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, and I'd spent a year doing that. And then the Republicans said, you're never going to get confirmed to be the permanent director of it. So I said, okay, and I'm going back to Massachusetts, and I'm going to do what I do. I'm going back to teaching. And bunch of people started calling me. Uh, Scott Brown, who you know, of course, here in New Hampshire as well. Scott Brown uh, was the senator from Massachusetts, and Massachusetts likes its moderate Republicans. And um, he was going to run for re-election. He had just beaten a woman not too long before then. He had a 65% approval rating. He had more than $10 million in the bank already. And people called and said, look, nobody's going to beat this guy. But you could, you know, get in the race, get in the race. And then they'd say to me, of course, you're not going to win either. Um, which I got to say, Democrats get a better sales pitch here. But um, I jumped in the race and I knew why I was running. I knew about the things I'm fighting for. And here was the commitment I made to myself on the first day, every single day, I would go out and talk to people about something that mattered. So big group, little group, whatever I could get together, I'd go out and talk about student loans. I'd go out and talk about childcare. I'd go out and talk about healthcare. I'd go to, out and talk about uh, climate change. I'd go out and talk about gun safety every single day. The second thing I did is every time I met a little girl, I would go down on one knee. I'd say, my name is Elizabeth, 
and I'm running for the Senate because that's what girls do. And then we do pinky promises that we get out there and fight for what we believe in. I started out 17 points down and I ended up beating him by seven and a half. You know, I grew up in a pretty hard scrabble family and I learned early on, you don't get what you don't fight for. I know how to fight and I know how to win. A lot of the more progressive candidates tend to brush off this question, but a lot of people are concerned that this primary is moving too far to the left, that whoever comes out of this process for the Democrats will be too far to the left to win in a general election. What do you say to those voters on the Democratic side who have that concern? Well, I think a lot of the old left-right politics, frankly, just don't apply much anymore. Let me give you a couple of examples. So I came out for a two-cent wealth tax. This is, this is my design. This is a tax on the top one-tenth of one percent of the great fortunes in this country. Your first 50 million, you keep free and clear. But after that, your 50 millionth and first dollar, you got to pitch in a penny and a penny for every dollar after that. It's just like a property tax, like any homeowner pays. Only for the bazillionaires, you also cover the yachts, the stock portfolio, the diamonds, and the Rembrandts. So, first of all, that wealth tax all by itself is popular across this country, not just with Democrats, but with independents and with Republicans who recognize this economy has gotten way out of balance and that that thin slice at the top, they're not paying a fair share. The 99% last year, all in, paid about 7.2% of their total wealth in taxes. That thin slice paid about 3.2%. So asking them to pitch in two cents, that's popular Democrats and Republicans. And now just look at some of the things you can do for it. Um, we could cancel student loan debt for about 95% of the kids who have student loan debt. Again, that's not just popular with Democrats, that's popular with Democrats and Republicans. Childcare for all of our babies, age zero to five, pre-K for all three-year-olds and four-year-olds. These are the kinds of investments that America wants to see. So I think of this as not direction moving so much about left-right, although it's fine if you want to describe it that way. I think of it as we're getting more in sync with where working people are in New Hampshire and all across this country. You were the first presidential candidate to call for the impeachment of President Donald Trump after the release of the summary of the Mueller report. Why isn't the 2020 election an adequate trial for President Trump, if you will? A actually, let me just make sure we're, we're the same on the facts. I didn't call for it after the summary. Um, I sat down to read the report. I had never expected to get into a presidential race and make it about impeachment. I said I'm taking him on in 2020. But the day the report came out, I sat down and I started reading it. And I read all the way through into the evening, into the night, early the next morning, and into the afternoon. I read all 448 pages of the report. And when I got to the end, it was perfectly clear. Robert Mueller said, first, a hostile foreign government attacked our 2016 election with the intent of helping Donald Trump. And it's documented, it's footnote, it's got text.
testimony, it's got written evidence, it's all there. Part two, Donald Trump welcomed that help. And again, plenty of footnotes, plenty of documentation. And part three, when our federal government went to investigate part one and part two, and Donald Trump was now president, he did everything he could to obstruct that investigation. Uh, Special Prosecutor Mueller makes 10 separate counts in which he, again, documents, footnotes, and says, here's what he did. At the end, Mueller says, it's not up to me. This is a question for the Congress of the United States of America. I get that there are a lot of people for political reasons who say, don't do this. But for me, some things are a lot bigger than politics. And one of them is stepping up and saying no one is above the law, and that includes the President of the United States. When he uses his office to obstruct justice repeatedly, then this is an impeachable offense. And this matters not just for Donald Trump. This matters for the next president and the one after that and the one after that. For me, it's a moment when everyone who's been elected to Congress, House and Senate, should have to just step up and vote and then live with the consequences of that vote for the rest of their lives. Senator Warren, thank you for answering these questions. There thank are you. more to come, of course. After the break, we'll bring our studio audience into this conversation. Stay with us. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's You Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join You Local. See you there. We're going to jump right into the town hall questions with Joan Wentworth. Good evening, Senator. Hi. You have outlined... So you're Joan? I'm Joan. Hi, Joan. Okay. <laughs> Should I call you Liz? Please. I'm <laughs> good. We can do this. We can totally do this. Okay. Well, you have outlined an aggressive liberal agenda for your administration. If the Senate remains under Republican control, mm -hmm. actually implementing it could prove challenging. So my question for you is, will your priorities be different with a Republican versus a Democratic-controlled Senate, and what will they be? Nope. <laughs> so, but let me talk about, I have a plan for how to get this done. I am, I am not going to Washington to talk about change. I want to go to Washington to make change. So let me divide it up just a little bit. First part is, there are a lot of things, oh, and I love saying this, that a president can do by herself. And that means, for example, on day one, uh, that I will sign executive orders to uh, uh, to stop all mining and drilling of fossil fuels in all of our national parks and offshore and all of our federal lands. You know, that's about a quarter of the land in the United States. And that's something you don't have to have Congress on, uh, with you on it. I also, um, on the first day, have a plan to start making companies walk the walk on equal pay for equal work and a diverse workforce and do that by using the power of federal contracting. Do you know federal contractors do about a half a trillion dollars worth of business with the United States government every year? 
And we have the right to set the terms for that business. And one of the ways we can set the terms is to say, no more just talking the talk. You've actually got to make change. So there are places you can make real tangible change on the first day by being a president who's got the courage to do it and got the vision to do it and willing to do it. But I want to take up the other part, because there are a lot of things you can only do with Congress. And I totally get that. I want to do a two-cent wealth tax, universal child care, cancel student loan debt for 95% of the kids who've got student loan debt. And that's going to take Congress. But here's where I want to frame the question a little bit differently. I'm for that. A big majority of Democrats are for that. But here's the deal. You get outside Washington, a majority of Republicans are for that. You start with things that actually have a lot of support. The problem, a huge part of the problem in Washington, is not how we're divided as a nation on something like student loans or whether or not the top one-tenth of one percent should pay a little bit more. It's that Washington is controlled by those who've got money, right? The giant corporations who hire all the lobbyists, the billionaires whose voices are always heard in Washington. So I see this as a big part of what we got to do, is attack the corruption head on. You've got to be willing to say to these guys, it's not going to be business as usual anymore. I'm willing to put proposals out right now that say, we're going to change lobbying as we know it. We've got, I've got a bill. Uh, I say, I have a bill. It's a bill in the House, but it's got a lot of pieces of my anti-corruption bill, all woven together to knock back the influence of money. And that puts us in a much better position to start doing the people's business. Because here's how I see it. If you've got a president who's willing to lead, and a majority of people around the country who really want to see this happen, and you don't think of an election, 2020, as being November of 2020 being the stop date, but you think of it as being a marker and that come January 2021, everybody who was engaged in November still got to be engaged. We got to push this Congress. I think that's how we start to make real change. And I'm, I don't want to go too long, but I want to add one more part to this because <laughs> I think it matters. I think when we actually make those first changes that touch people's lives, when student loan debt is canceled for 43 million Americans, remember that's Democrats, Republicans, independents. When childcare is available to 12 million children in this country, whether their parents are Democrats or Republicans or independents, I think our whole vision of who government works for and creating a government that works for us starts to change. And then I think every other piece of this gets easier. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Joan. Thank you, Joan. Next question, Kara Doberstein. Hi. Hi, Kara. How are you today? I'm good. Thank Excellent. You. Thanks for taking the time to answer my question yeah. today. Um, so I'm 33 years old. I have many friends and family. We talk about um, the idea of starting families and what that looks like. And I got to say, it's a little scary when you yeah. think about climate change yep. and where that might be for future generations. Could you elaborate a little bit more on what your plans would well, be? I sure can. So let's start with the fact this is one we all got to be on board for. Climate change is the existential threat. And we gotta get it, we gotta get it right, we gotta do it fast, we're running out of time. Mm -hmm. And we can't just do it here in the United States. This is a worldwide problem. Mm -hmm. We need to be leaders. Okay, 
again, there are some things you can do right at the beginning. I mentioned about stopping drilling and mining. Um, also, uh, how about we don't have a coal lobbyist at the head of the EPA? You know, a lot of, uh, we rejoined the Paris Climate Accords. But I want to talk to you about a big change. So here's, here's my idea. Think of it this way. Um, we could get to net carbon neutral by 2030 by really pushing hard here in the United States. Zero emission, right, by, by, by 2030. But that'll only solve 20% of the problem. It doesn't get us where we need to be. So let's think globally. Globally, there's an upcoming $23 trillion market for clean energy and for cleaning up this earth, cleaning the air, cleaning the water, uh, new ways to do desalinization, right? Lots and lots of pieces. In fact, much of it hasn't even been invented yet. Okay, we're kind of on the edge, we have ideas. So here's my plan. Part one, we up our investment in research and development on climate, on green, on products, tenfold, tenfold to the National Science Foundation, to the others that are working in this area, right? And then we say to the whole world, we're developing these great ideas, great innovations, great ways we can do things. You can have all of it. You can do any part of this you want, but You've got to build it here in the United States. American taxpayers are going to pay for the research. Then, by golly, we're going to get the fruits of the research. No more like Apple, where we did all the research, and then they built all those iPhones over in China. You've got to build it here in the United States. And then part three is that these products we're building in the United States, we then take around the world. And here's another example, China right now. For every dollar we spend on marketing our products or helping finance our products around the world, China's spending $100. We need to make a much bigger investment on marketing our products around the world and these products that we can develop. So that's the plan. Mm -hmm. It would produce 1.2 million new manufacturing jobs right here in America, be an industrial policy that works for the U.S., create all kinds of new political alliances to want to get this done. But most of all, it puts us in a place where we are the leaders worldwide and really putting our shoulder into it to clean up here at home and to help everybody clean up around the world. I think that's our best hope. Thank you. Thank you. Sarah, next question you. comes from Beverly Cotton. Hi, Beverly. Welcome. Thank you. It's Thank good you to be here. here. Yeah. I have a question regarding health care. Yes. If we have Medicare for all mm -hmm. and we understand the low reimbursement rates yep. to doctors, hospitals, clinics, how do hospitals and clinics stay solvent and not end up in closures reducing our options for receiving that health care? It's an excellent question, Betty, uh, I'm, I, uh, Beverly, and I'm going to switch this. I'm going to do it both ways. It's both, there are areas where we need to change our reimbursement rates. I mean, that's just, it's not a given where the reimbursement rates are now, and we need to make changes. But I want to make the argument, because I think it's important, that Medicare for all will mean nobody comes into the hospital who doesn't, for whom there's no reimbursement. Nobody comes in who's just got to be picked up on the hospital's dime. Everybody will carry reimbursement with them because everybody will be covered. 
And that's going to be the best possible economic move for every one of our rural hospitals, for every one of our small hospitals that are operating on such incredibly thin margins, that a few people coming in the door who have serious medical problems and all of a sudden they've gone from being in the black to being in the red. So I think it's about getting the rates right, and that means we've got to have the hospitals, we've got to have the healthcare providers at the table to make sure they're in the right place. Nobody's helped if these hospitals are closed. But it's also about making sure there's full coverage so that it's not just our big city hospitals that can survive, the ones that are doing high volume, but that it's our smaller hospitals that can survive as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Next you question me. comes from Terrence Gienerin. Hi, Sandra. Thank Hi, you Terrence. for being here. Um, if elected president, would you be in favor or against a law that would reinstate and strengthen the ban on assault weapons that was in place from 1994 to 2004? And I'm why? in favor of a ban on assault weapons. I don't think weapons of war belong in our streets. I just don't. You know, seven children will die today on this very day, this beautiful, sunny, gorgeous day. And seven children and teenagers. And seven will die again tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And they will die, some in mass shootings, some will get a headline, but many of them will die in, on street corners, they'll die in parks, they'll die in backyards, they'll die in living rooms, they will die in communities of color, and no one will notice, and it will just keep happening. For me, this one is a moral responsibility. The job of the adults is to make sure the children are safe, and taking weapons of war off the streets is one part of that. I also believe in universal background checks, uh, no bump stocks, no fly, no buy. We've got a lot of pieces that most Americans agree on, and including gun owners, including members of the NRA. But for me, this goes back to what's wrong in Washington. A government that works great for those who are connected, for those who have money to spend, for those who have armies of lobbyists and lawyers, but isn't doing what most of the American people want. And on guns, we gotta do this one nationally. We gotta find it nationally. As you know, you border Massachusetts that has some of the best gun safety laws in the country. But so long as everybody can drive down to Virginia and there's a gun show loophole, nobody can keep their own streets and own families safe. So this is, this is a commitment I make. I, I've done, I think it's 106 town halls now. Single hardest question I got was from a little boy who was maybe six or seven and his question was, how are you going to keep us safe when you're president? And I just, I feel like this is our responsibility, and we've got to do this. We've got to make change. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we've got about two minutes left. Okay. Christine Carter, a quick question, quick answer. Hi, Christine. Senator Warren. My son is a senior in high school. He's <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a single parent and a teacher. Yep. So obviously we are going to need some financial aid. Yep. I'm concerned that he's going to be saddled with student debt. Can you please explain your plan to help students like him 
to afford college, also considering that UNH is one of the most expensive state universities in That's the country. That's right, and people borrow more money here to go to school. I got a plan to fix that. So here's the plan. <laughs> the two cent wealth tax I was talking about, that's two cents. Your first 50 million you keep free and clear, but at your 50 millionth and first dollar, you got to pitch in two cents and two cents for every dollar above that. That produces enough money to do universal childcare, universal pre-K for every three-year-old and four-year-old, raise the wages of every childcare worker and preschool teacher in this country, and now we come to it. Provide tuition-free technical school, community college, or four-year college for any kid who wants to get an education. We can level the playing field, put $50 billion into our historically black colleges and universities, and we can cancel student loan debt for 95% of the kids who've got student loan debt. I think of this as, sure, it's about dollars. I teach economics and money, but this is about our values. Is it more important to leave that two cents with the top one-tenth of one percent, or is it better to take that two cents and invest it in all of our kids and giving all of them a chance to build a real future? We could do this. All right, thank you for the question. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. We're going to continue with our town hall questions, starting with Laura Landerman-Garber. Welcome back to New Hampshire. Thank you, Laura. I am sorry that Bailey isn't with you. But I know. Maybe I know. next time. Okay. Maybe next time. On a more serious note, I think many of us, and sadly, tragically, most of us have been touched in some way uh, by domestic violence. Yes. I'm a psychologist, and I see a lot of teens who have been assaulted in the home mm -hmm. or have witnessed violent behavior between their parents or siblings. I'm very concerned, as I think the nation is, about about this issue it's a national crisis it's what i've learned also is that state by state there are variations yes. on how they um, approach the, these concerns and these issues um, whether it's child uh, placement outside of the home custody arrangements i'm sure you have a warren plan for this uh, what might that be and how do you address the nation of victims of domestic violence so let's start with that question about the victims uh, is to say to every one of them, you are not alone. The rest of us are here, and we will make resources available. We will welcome you. We will help you through this, and you can build a life after this. I think that um, my experience with people who've experienced domestic violence is a sense of there's no way out. I'm trapped forever. My life will always be like this or worse. And that that's part of it. That's part of beating somebody down. It's not just physical abuse and other forms of mental abuse. It's the, you have no power on your own. And I think this is, I like, I want to start this by saying there will be power. Go ahead, Laura. Can I say that um, a young person in Florida recently told me that a judge told her because she wasn't hit physically by the abuser, that she could not get a restraining order. Yeah, well, the there's judge a lot is of wrong. different kinds of <laughs> That's right. abuse. That's, That's right. right. There are a lot of different kinds of abuse, and the judge is wrong. So let's start with that. Then the part becomes how do we help? 
And for domestic abuse, the answer is in a lot of different, it's a lot of different places. So part of it is the money that we need to put in on mental health. Um, for, sometimes it's for both parties who are involved in this and children and extended families. You know, um, we have a mental health parity law in America that says that insurance is supposed to cover mental health issues at the same rate and in the same ways that they cover setting a broken leg or a cancer treatment. The reality is that just isn't happening. Um, I have a plan to strengthen that, a plan to put more resources into it, but I think that's one place that's helpful. Obviously, one of them is making sure that we're funding our crisis centers, our counselors who are helping, absolutely critical part. Another one that I just want to mention, I mentioned earlier about universal child care. Universal child care is a way to create some independence. If you know that you've got a great setup for your baby, for your two-year-old, for your four-year-old twins, you know you can do it and you will be able to afford it, afford it because it's there, it's free, it's available to you. That's where you get the little bit of hope to go finish your education, to take a part-time job, a full-time job, but the point is to, to start standing up a little bit. So I think that's another piece that intersects. And one more that I want to mention. I've got a housing bill that is uh, about investing. America needs to invest again in housing. We've just quit doing this. You know, the, the developers, and I understand this, the developers now build at the top end. So if you want to make mansion, plenty of them available. But that little two-bedroom, one-bath that I grew up in, the tract house that the developers used to do, the garage was converted into a room, bedroom for my three brothers, they're not building those houses anymore. And the federal government has backed out of a lot of the housing that it used to provide. So again, I've, I've got a plan, I've got a, a, a plan and it's fully paid for to build about 3.2 million new housing units. They're for middle class families, for working class families, for the working poor, for the poor poor, for the homeless, for seniors who need a chance to age in place, for people with disabilities, and to provide housing for people who are victims of domestic abuse until they get themselves into another circumstance. So I think of this as the pieces are connected to each other. And every time we invest in our babies, we're also investing in their mamas and their daddies to help them stand up on their own. And we're investing in our future. And that's the way we don't just say you're not alone. That's the way we make sure you're not alone. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Laura. Laura. Next yeah, question comes from George Matthews. George. Hi. Um, I believe the current occupant of the White House has decimated our international standing as an ally. Yeah. From North Korea to Iran and many places in between. Please tell me how you would approach foreign policy and the security of our great nation. Okay. That's a really good question, George. Let me just start with a couple of baseline points. Uh, foreign policy by tweet doesn't work. It's actually more complicated than that. Um, uh, and uh, know the difference between your friends and your enemies. Uh, the idea that we now have a commander in chief who sucks up 
to dictators and autocrats, who, for example, in North Korea, has given North Korea every photo op they wanted, every propaganda and indicia of legitimacy, in return for what? He's continuing his missile program. And the thing is, it's not only how North Korea then looks and insists what chumps, it's the rest of the world says that. And when he attacks our allies at the same time that he supports these autocrats, then you watch much of the world pull away from us. And this matters because in foreign policy, we need our allies. That's how we are stronger. How did we get Iran to the table initially to negotiate on its nuclear program? And the answer was by working with all of our allies and actually bringing in on that Russia and China. Where do we stand today? Our allies have broken away from us and Iran is working closer than ever with Russia and China. And it looks like we've got our toes on the edge of yet another war in the Middle East. This is just the worst of the worst of the worst as it keeps rolling forward. So let's think of this in a more holistic way. So how do you think about this? I think about the fact that we have multiple tools in the toolbox. Military is not our only tool. We also have economic tools and diplomatic tools. We need a strong State Department. We need a strong policy in working with other countries and in using foreign aid, our own and that of our allies, to help stabilize hotspots around the world. If we were putting more foreign aid right now into Central America, the crisis we see at the border would not, would not look like it does. Mamas wouldn't feel like they need to wrap up their babies in the middle of the night and flee for their lives if those countries were more stable and the rule of law were in place. So partly, it's about remembering the tools in the toolbox. Partly, it's about remembering that if we are thinking about military action, we've got to be sure that it is our last resort, not our first. We don't threaten it if we don't mean it. And we don't go in some place unless we are sure it is a problem that can be solved by the military and we have a clear plan for how to get out on the other side. You know, all three of my brothers served in the military. My oldest brother was career military, five and a half years in combat in Vietnam. I know our military is the best on earth and they will do whatever we ask them to do. Their families sacrifice, they sacrifice, but it is critical. The other half of that promise is we will not use them when they are not the solution and we will not use them when we do not have a clear plan for identified objectives and then a way to get out on the other side. America, uh, the world wants America to be a leader. Not all the world, but much of the world wants to turn to us and see our leadership, wants to see us live our values at home. So I'm, I'm just going to wrap this by saying one more part of it, and that is every one of these economic issues we've talked about, climate issues, gun issues that we've talked about, they affect us here at home, but they affect our international standing. We need to be a nation that prioritizes keeping our children safe. We need to be a nation that says we get that the threat is global, 
and the solution is global and we want to be part of that. We want to help. We want to be a nation that treats everybody with respect and dignity. Make sure that health care is available to everyone, whether you live in a big urban center or whether you live in a rural area. Everybody gets access. Those are the things. We live those values at home. We become a much more powerful leader around the world. Thank you. Thank you, George. A question coming in from social media now. Okay. Judd Miller asks, do you agree with Bernie Sanders that people in prison deserve the privilege to vote? So, you know, I am completely on board for people having the right to vote once they've left prison, once they've served their debt. But while they're still in prison, I'm, you know, there's a lot of your rights that are suspended when you're in prison. And I'm, I'm just not there on that one. Um, not there yet. All right. Next question comes from Elizabeth Radisich. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. We double Elizabeth. Yes, here. we here are. We, go. Um, we have a few things in common. They're okay. Uh, in addition to being blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Elizabeth, mm -hmm. we uh, we yeah, also I had to acquire mine. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still have some help too. Um, I, we're both former teachers. Oh yes. Uh, I also taught special ed for a little while. Oh, good. And, um, you know, we, we both have a heart for service and, and we live our lives to serve others. Uh, we also have in common that we have a family narrative where um, what we were told throughout our lives wasn't necessarily what came out once we took our 23andMe uh, mm -hmm. test. Mm -hmm. uh, in my case, it was the uh, Cherokee great-grandmother uh -huh. that did not exist. Yeah. Um, where we differ is that I'm the mom of three-year-old twins. Oh, and my three busy. <laughs> I am. Uh -huh. And my three-year-old twins are black. Uh-huh. And so it's given me a totally different perspective on the purpose of affirmative action. Mm -hmm. Because even though I can give my children everything in the world, my children at age three and a half have already faced racism. That's why we have affirmative action. So I struggle with your decisions earlier in your career to self-identify on state documents as Native American. Mm -hmm. I feel that that um, disrespected the reason why we have those affirmative action categories. Mm -hmm. So how do you overcome the bridge with voters like me who like you who like your plans, who like what you have to say, but I have concerns about your honesty. So, um, I grew up out in Oklahoma, uh -huh. and like most people, my brothers and I learned about who we are uh -huh. uh, from our mom and our dad. Right. Uh, my family is very important to me, and based on that, sometimes, uh, decades ago, I identified that way, but nothing about the way I identified ever had anything to do with my academic career. The Boston Globe did an extensive piece on that about a year ago. Okay. Um, even so, I shouldn't have done it. I am not a person of color. I am not a citizen of a tribe, and I've apologized for um, any confusion and 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 over tribal sovereignty, tribal citizenship, mm. and 
any harm caused by that. Um, the way I see it is that we have a chance in 2020 to decide the kind of America we want to be. Oh, yeah. Donald Trump wants to turn us all against each other. We have a chance to come together and to build an America in which we take up each other's fights and we try to make them all our own. I'll give you an example in my work. I try to be a good partner. And that means when I do housing, we talked just briefly about it in connection earlier with, uh, 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 with domestic abuse and the need for housing, that I have a housing plan that's about 3.2 million new housing units. But it also has a part of it that attacks the legacy of redlining head on. Um, just a quick background on this. Housing is the number one way that middle class families, working families build wealth in this country generation after generation. Uh, it's the one asset you buy that appreciates and if grandma and grandpa can live in it until they die, it produces wealth for the next generation and the next generation. And that in turn creates other opportunities, educational opportunities, opportunities to start a business. So it should be no surprise that the federal government for decades and decades and decades subsidized the purchase of housing for white people. But for black people, it cut it off. That was redlining. And it discriminated against African Americans who were trying to buy homes, uh, Latinx who were trying to buy homes if you lived in a community of color. And that was the law into the 1960s produced a black-white housing gap that's big, produced a black-white wealth gap that's huge, began to come down when those laws were outlawed in the late 1960s, mid-1960s. And you see the black-white wealth gap start to close. And you see African-Americans, for example, starting to own more homes. And by the way, white families starting to own more homes. It was just happening faster for African-Americans. The gap was starting to close. And then the banks looked around and said, hmm, there's a lot of wealth being built up in communities of color. And that's where they started testing out the worst of the worst mortgages. And our federal government covered its ears, covered its eyes, and just let them have at it. Now eventually they took those terrible mortgages all around the country and ultimately crashed the economy in 2008. But today, the homeownership gap between blacks and whites is bigger than it was when housing discrimination was legal in America. Think about that. So, in my housing plan, 3.2 million new housing units, reduce rents across the country, the estimate is independently by Moody's, by about 10%. But attack the effects of redlining head on and provide first-time buyer assistance to people who've lived in formerly redlined areas and buyer's assistance to people who lived in those areas and lost their homes during the crash. For me, it's about how we're going to build this future going forward. So that's what I'm trying to do. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Thank Elizabeth. You. Next question comes from Marie Mulroy. Hi, how are Hi, you? How Welcome are you, to Marie? New Hampshire again. Yeah, I, my question, and, and you've talked about it a little bit, and I know you're starting to work on it, uh -huh. but how would you get the big money finally out of politics and elections? So, 
Um, here's the good news. I have the biggest anti-corruption bill since Watergate. Here's the bad news. We need the biggest anti-corruption <laughs> bill <laughs> since Watergate because the effect oh, of money, just as you say, Maureen, is felt everywhere. It's felt in every place. If there is a decision to be made in Washington, whether it's on guns or opioids or housing or uh, education, it's been touched by money. So this bill has lots of moving parts. You wouldn't be surprised to learn that. Lots of moving parts, and here are just a few of them. The first one is end lobbying as we know it. And let me give you a very specific idea behind that. In this bill, I propose that everyone who is uh, uh, in the House of Representatives, in the Senate, in the White House, is the head of one of the agencies, or is a cabinet official, is banned for life from lobbying. Done. <laughs> I, my view is, if you want an important government job like that, and those are very important government jobs, you can't be looking over the edge at your next job in the pharmaceutical industry or your next job over in the oil industry. So just ban them for life. Um, I want to block the revolving door between Wall Street and Washington. This idea, and it's not just there, it's mm -hmm. true for big ag, it's true for big tech. You can't have these guys who work for the industry, work for the industry, work for the industry. Are you ready for this? Uh, this is what happened um, uh, to uh, one, of, one of Trump's economic advisors. He then gets a bazillion dollar payout to come work for the government for a couple of years, rewriting the tax laws for the industry that he just left. This revolving door between the industry mm -hmm. and, and Washington has got to stop. So that's another one. I'll give you another quick one. Here's one you might not have thought of. Um, the United States Supreme Court, do you know what the ethics rules are on conflicts of interest, for example, for the United States Supreme Court? Trust us. <laughs> they have no ethics rules beyond that. The lower courts do, but not the Supreme Court. I think the Supreme Court should have to follow basic rules of ethics. That parties who have decisions that are pending in front of the court uh, shouldn't be able to sponsor you for uh, coming and doing a fancy speech at a fancy golf resort for days on end. I just don't think this sort of thing is right. And I'll give you one more. And then, I could do these all day long, <laughs> but I'll give you one more. And that is, um, uh, here's one that'll dig out some corruption. Everyone who runs for federal office should have to put their tax returns online. Absolutely. The American people ought to be able to see it. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that exposes uh, where you got your money, how you've been doing it. I've done it. I've now put out, I think it's 11 years of tax returns. And I think everybody ought to do it. And if you're not willing to do that, then don't take a job of public trust. Well, thank I you. hope that's helpful. Yes, it was. Thank, thank you so you. much. Quick thank follow you. on that, Senator. You uh -huh. mentioned the Supreme Court. Uh, some people in this race have said that uh, there should be a litmus test publicly for nominees to the Supreme Court to say they would support the Roe v. Wade or mm -hmm. basic abortion rights for women. Do you agree with that, that these nominees should declare their intent before a ruling is made? Look, the way I see this, Roe v. Wade is the law. And you want a Supreme Court nominee and a Supreme Court justice 
who is committed to upholding the law. We don't, this is not an open question on Roe v. Wade. Uh, we don't need activist judges who are willing to overturn it. So I'm not sure you have to use the words litmus test on this because this really is about what the current law is. But I do want to say on Roe v. Wade, I just want to do a quick one off to the side. For 47 years, we've been counting on the courts to protect us, Roe v. Wade, and for 47 years, we've been on defense. There's less and less protection. There's a little chip here on, well, it's okay to be Roe v. Wade, but we're going to shut down so there's only one abortion provider in a state, or uh, we're going to make it impossible for anybody to operate, right? Different ways to keep narrowing it up. But we live in a democracy, and about three out of four Americans believe that Roe v. Wade should be the law. Whether or not they personally, how they feel about the questions of abortion or reproductive, they believe in reproductive freedom. And they say, Roe v. Wade should be the law. So this is another one for me that I think we need to be on offense. And that is, pass it through Congress. Don't rely on the courts for this. And besides, when you pass it through Congress, you can actually make the edges clear on this. No more of this kind of chipping at the edges and finding you know, sideways to try to undercut what's there in Roe versus Wade. This is what about three out of four Americans want. I think that's what we should just take to Congress, and I think we should adopt it. Next question comes from Leonard Morrill. Hi, Leonard. Hi. Thank you for coming here tonight. You bet. Okay. I'm an independent voter. And for the last 10 years, the most I've seen done in, war in Congress is investigations one party over another. If half as much effort was spent on Social Security, infrastructure, gun violence, race relations, we would have gone a long way in solving these problems. Why should I vote for someone that's in Congress? <laughs> that's an interesting question. It's an, it's an interesting question, although I will point out to you, um, Congress knows how to act when it wants to act. It passed a what, trillion and a half dollar tax giveaway in what, under five weeks? Uh, why? Not because America's middle class wanted it, not because working families wanted it, not because small business owners wanted it, but because a handful of the richest people wanted it. In fact, it leaked out about uh, a couple of congressmen said openly, we got to pass this. My donors have said, if we don't get this passed, don't come back to me for more donations. So I think describing this as a Congress that doesn't work or hasn't worked for 10 years, I think it works. I think it works for the people who have money, and I think it works just great for them. I think right now, this Congress works great for giant drug companies, right? It just doesn't work for people who want to get a prescription filled. It works great for people who invest in private prisons. It just doesn't work for people whose lives are destroyed and whose communities are torn apart. It works great for giant oil companies that want to drill everywhere. It just isn't working for those of us who see climate change bearing down upon us. The problem, as I see it, is not that Congress doesn't work. It's that it's working very quietly and very well for those who make the investment in Washington for those who hire the lobbyists and the lawyers and the bought and paid for experts, for those who flood that town with money. And the only way that's going to change is if we take it back and say no. And now the question comes, so how do you know I do that rather than anybody else? Mm -hmm. 
I walked the walk on this. When I decided to run for President of the United States, I said, I'm going to spend my time in town halls. I'm going to take unfiltered questions from anybody who raises them. But what I'm not going to do is I'm not going behind closed doors with a bunch of CEOs and a bunch of millionaires and raise my money from them. And that's exactly what I've done. I've walked the walk on this. Like I said, it's been over 100 town halls. I've taken more than 2,000 unfiltered questions. I've uh, done over 35,000 selfies. Uh, it's true. Uh, we've done, uh, but this is the heart of it, is I've worked on trying to build a grassroots movement because I'm not going to be beholden to some tech industry executive, to some oil industry executive, uh, to some group that put bunches of money in and bought my time and got in my ear before I got there. The fundamental question is who are we going to make government work for? And I am determined in 2020 that we've had enough of government working for a thinner and thinner slice at the top. We've got to make this government work for everyone. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Leonard. As Thank we you. wrap up Thanks, here, Leonard. I'm going to jump in with a question. Sure. So you share something in common with Donald Trump. Okay. You're running for president in a party in which you did not start your political life. That's right. So what vestiges of your former republicanism do you feel you retain in life today? You know, I, I grew up in a family that just wasn't political. And, and uh, even as, a, as an adult with, you know, kids and teaching school and doing my research, politics was not front and center for me. But politics, uh, what I began to understand was through my research. So my research was on why families go broke, why America's middle class is being hollowed out, why working people are finding the path so much steeper and rockier than they did a generation ago, and why for people of color it has gotten even steeper and even rockier. And what I discovered in this is that the big banks that had built models on cheating people, credit card companies and uh, payday loan outfits and giant financial institutions, that every one of them, um, they wanted changes made in Washington, particularly the one the fight I got in was over the bankruptcy bill. And um, all of the Republicans lined up with them. And frankly, half the Democrats did. But when I found somebody who was willing to stand up with working people and was willing to fight back against the big banks that were going to cheat them, they were all Democrats. And so for me, that was the deal. I said, I'm with the Democrats. I jumped in. That's been a long, long time ago, and I've been in this fight ever since for working families. Senator Warren, we thank you for taking time with us thank to you. answer our questions thank and the you. town hall questions. Thank you to our audience here. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.